that whenever I uh, cross the Bay Bridge, whichever direction I'm traveling, I look out over the water. Maybe you do too. I, I love the things I see. There's a real beauty there. And one of the things I, I look for are the boats, both the big and the small, those with sails and those without the other kinds of pleasure craft. But I also look for the shipping in the channel, the tankers and containers, sometimes a, a warship sitting at anchor or making their way up the channel. And maybe it's my background, uh, having sailed the oil tankers in my younger days, but I'm always glad to see those things. Uh, And then, too, when I ride up to my father's house in Pennsylvania, a portion of my trip puts me right next to the Delaware River, and I get a closer look at the big ships at that time as they make their way upriver. And there's something intriguing, and I suppose some would even say majestic, about those vessels which cross the oceans. You see them moving with power and grace, really, and you know that's exactly what they were made to do. It's an enjoyable thing, this ship watching. It's one of the little pleasures of my life. And yet that view from the bridge or next to the river doesn't tell all the story. That ship moves up river is a beautiful thing, and I'm glad for it. But to know how it does it, you have to look inside. You have to take a look at the machinery. Deep in the bows of that ship, you'll find a boiler that makes steam and drives a turbine. Or a nuclear plant which does the same or maybe generates electricity power, electric motors, all of which drive a shaft which turns a propeller that sends that ship through the water. And there are other things going on down there. There's pumps and generators and blowers and ventilators, evaporators making drink water. On top side, there are charts and navigation equipment and running lights. There are reefers and ovens and stores of food to feed the crew. There are ropes and cables, anchors and chains and windlasses and winches and captains and cranes. And it almost sounds poetic. And all of those things work together, both the people and the machinery, so that vessel can do what it was made to do and sail the waters of the world. Now, we've been talking for a couple of months now about the church, and we've talked about, well, what it was made for and how God is at work in the church, making it all that he intends it to be, Uh, how he builds us together into a holy temple where his spirit dwells. We understand that the church is built on an everlasting foundation, and the gates of hell will not prove stronger than it. That we're outposts in enemy territory of the kingdom of God. The word tells us, as amazing as it is, we are the body of Christ which the fullness of God is being poured into, and that every genuine church, of which there are many, is the local expression of his body. And all the church, not just part of it, somehow beyond our ken, is there, right there, or here, right here in this place. Now we've talked about how the Holy Spirit gives gifts to God's people so we can advance the kingdom of God. There is nothing else 
like the church. There are imitations that pretend to be the church. There are human organizations, clubs, and and society, some of which do good things, but they aren't the church. They may even be used by God to accomplish some purpose of his, but they are not empowered by him like the church is, and they certainly are not his temple or his body. There is absolutely nothing like the church. And today, what I want to do is I want to look at the church from a different perspective than we have been, to talk about, if I can, the machinery of the church, at least some of it. As though we got off of the bridge and out of the car and onto the ship. The view from there is certainly less spectacular. We see more of us in that picture. And when we're there in the midst of all of the machinery, the church begins to look more like a, a human thing than the wonder of God. And yet, that is the wonder that God Almighty not only is in us and works through us, but with us, with you and me and all of our failings and foibles. Now, there are two mundane things that we're going to talk about this morning. And if we're going to have a more complete picture of the church, then we need to investigate these things also. Today, we're going to talk about the government of the church, or we may call it the structure of the church. And we're also going to talk about membership in the church. Now, that might not sound very exciting to you. And if it were my choice, I'm not sure I would have signed up to the class. But here we are, brought uh, here by God, not so that our fancy gets tickled, but that we might understand and mature in the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Maybe the most obvious place to start this morning is to acknowledge that when it comes to church government, Christians don't all agree on which one is right. (laughs) And before I have to go any further, I have to comment on what I just said. You know, church government is a second-order thing. There are first-order things, essential things, like the deity of Christ and the blood atonement, uh, where we may brook no wavering. For to waver in those things is to abandon the faith. But those second-order things, uh, we don't have to all agree on them. It doesn't even have to affect our unity. At least it doesn't have to. And what I mean by that is Christ called us to unity, not uniformity. We are unified if we love one another, even when we don't agree on every point. In fact, that's how we know we're united, when we do love one another, even though we have disagreements. I have used this illustration many times before, but I will keep on using it to combat the attacks of the enemy when he says we as Christians are so helplessly splintered that we can't do any good. When in fact, the matter is, is that he incites the divisions and then uses them to blame us. And I will keep on using this illustration because Christians in the past have fallen for the enemy's lies. And as much as enemy as possible, I will combat those deceptions wherever and wherever I think they're even hinted at, cutting the ground out from under the enemy so the truth of God's word will shine told you before my hand represents a circle you put everything a 
Baptist, a Bible-believing Baptist believes, you put it in that circle. And you take this hand and let's call it Presbyterians. And they're Bible-believing Presbyterians. You put everything that they believe in that circle. Now you bring them together and you find there's almost complete overlap. There's only a few things at the edge that we don't agree on. And all of those things are second-order things. And so we continue to love one another even when we disagree. I have to do these second-order things the way I believe the Bible teaches because I have to be true to God and to myself in these matters. But they are second-order, and they don't divide me from other Christians. So there are different kinds of church structures. There are churches where there is an overarching hierarchy which runs everything. And then there are churches where each church has a, a small group which rules, and sometimes those groups come together and form larger entities. And then there are churches like ours, uh, which we would de uh, describe maybe as democratic, where the authority rests with the people. Now, th there's a reason why there's, there's numerous forms of structures uh, of a church, and that is the Bible doesn't tell us which one is right. Instead, we have these principles, the things that we have been talking about in our study of the church, which tell us what the church really is. But we also have the New Testament account of how the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors went about building the church uh, and leading the church in those early days shortly after Jesus walked the earth. So in one place... We have Paul telling Titus to appoint elders in every town as though the hierarchy ran the show. And in other places, we have whole churches coming together and making decisions. And it looks as though we're looking at a democracy. Now, this isn't a classroom. And we're not going to look at every possible structure and evaluate them. Instead, we're going to talk about what we do here and why we think it's right. That's going to be our approach today. I'll say this, however, <laughs> right now. I think the hierarchy where people at the top uh, run everything has the least support of any of the possibilities. In fact, I'd even say it has no support, and I'll tell you why I think that later. Now, our church doesn't actually operate as a democracy it's really more of a republic, and I hope you know the difference. Uh, our government here in the United States is a republic. It, it's worked pretty well for two, almost 250 years now. And in democracy, every decision is made by all the people. In a republic, however, the people select some to represent them and to make the day-to-day -day decisions that need to be made. And so in this church... You elect the elders and deacons. You choose the pastors. You entrust them with leading the church, and the authority rests with you. Well, actually, actually, the authority is God's, which brings us to the most important reason why we operate the way we do. 
we believe the churches ought to run either as a democracy, which really becomes impractical as the groups get larger. I mean, think about it. How hard is it to get everybody together for a meeting or a family get-together? Or they have to operate as we do as a kind of republic. And we believe this because we believe the priesthood of all believers. Now, that idea, this concept, is found throughout the New Testament, but it's Peter who, who puts it in this form when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, and the, the scriptures will be up on either side of me. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And there's our term, and, and I want you to understand, he's talking to all believers there, and so they offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And a few verses later, in verse 9, he repeats this idea. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. There it is again. Uh, the holy nation, um, he's talking to all the believers. God's special possession that you may declare is praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. This doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, is one of the most beautiful and important doctrines in the Bible. The, the priesthood of all believers means that you and I, every believer, everyone who has put his or her hope into Jesus Christ may come into the presence of the living God. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, when Jesus gave up his spirit on that cross, signifying that the way into the holiest place was now open to all who believe. We believe that God Almighty communicates with his children, that there is only one mediator that's needed between any individual and God. That's what the Bible teaches, and the mediator is Christ Jesus himself. The Bible says we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, when someone puts their trust in Christ, they have, from that point on, a personal relationship with God. And we believe that God communicates with his children. He communicates with us primarily through the following things. His word, whether the word is read in our private devotions or proclaimed uh, from the housetops. Uh, as we pray in that very personal one-on-one -on -one time with God in corporate worship where God meets with us in a special way or by the leading of his Holy Spirit. He communicates with us sometimes through circumstances and other people and maybe others ways also. But he communicates with us. And since we have this special relationship with God, he communicates with each one of us. He guides us. And see, we believe that the same thing happens on a larger scale of the congregation. Now, now I'm going to tell you how it works on a kind of a smaller scale, in, in, a, in a littler kind of picture. You know, sometimes people will come to me seeking guidance on some issue. Maybe they might want to know something like, well, should I buy this certain house or, or, or should I take this promotion or change jobs? And, and they come seeking uh, God's will for their lives and they're doing the right thing when they seek counsel because the Bible says that's what the wise people do. And I'm really glad to talk with them. And I usually encourage them to go talk with other people that they trust, family and friends, uh, you know, people who have insight into their lives and, 
I offer them whatever insight I have, but I tell them that ultimately God will guide them. You see, God hasn't told me what his will for your life is other than things in the word which are God's will for all of his people. You see, that's not how God operates, telling me what you're supposed to do. I can tell you what the Bible says, and I'm glad to help you think through the issues, but you're a child of God, and he speaks to you, and he speaks to you about you. So that's what the priesthood of all believers mean. Not that we know everything, not that we shouldn't seek counsel from others, but that God is intimately involved in our lives. And the priesthood of all believers means it's the primary doctrinal foundation for how we operate as a church. But there are some examples also of that kind of thing that are going on in the scriptures, uh, that democratic kind of expression of structure. And, um, and there are at least four instances of those in the New Testament, and all of them are in the book of Acts. We're going to look at them really briefly. Uh, 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 of that very kind of thing happening, that democratic style of, of structuring a church. So in Acts 1, Judas's successor was chosen by Lot. And then in chapter 6, the deacons are chosen by the church at large, the brothers and sisters, the congregation. In chapter 15, there are two of them. First, the church in Antioch seeks the advice of the church in Jerusalem. And then when the Jerusalem church met to consider Antioch's request, whether Gentiles had to essentially become Jews, then we're told in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And and once that Jerusalem church had reached their decision that no, the Gentiles were not under the law, they sent a letter to that effect to all the churches. And verse 22 tells us who was chosen to deliver it and who chose them. Then the apostles and elders with the people, the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men, send them to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul. Uh, They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. See, four men, Barnabas, Paul, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas were chosen to carry that letter. And they were chosen by the apostles and elders. So in, in our church, in our situation, it would be the representatives of the church. It would be the pastors and elders and deacons who made that, that, that were participating in that. But it's together with the whole church because the authority rests in the church. So when you have these New Testament examples which are, support that kind of structure, and, and there are numerous other things we could look at which point toward that structure, but that's going to have to suffice. We can also say why we don't think some other form is valid. So, in the last example we considered, well, it's one of the primary passages of the churches that have this hierarchical structure point to for their position. But that very example shows the whole church is involved in the process through their leaders express that position. And then too, the church in Antioch, which sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. They were seeking the input of the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church not only had more experience, that's also where 
those who had walked with Jesus were. The, the apostles with a capital A, that's where they were. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas there to seek their advice. We can see how Paul treated the churches he founded. He wrote to many of them. He wrote to some he didn't directly establish, correcting them and instructing them to care for and admonish his people. But he never wrote to one church and tell them to bring another church in line. He never threatened to go to the head office. <laughs> he never implied that there was such a thing. Every church he wrote to, every single one of them, he wrote to them expecting them to regulate themselves. And as for Titus appointing elders... Well, those were church plants, startups, mission churches full of newborn Christians lacking the maturity to make those decisions. And yet, a time would come when they too would be a church responsible for all those actions on its own. Why Bible? We operate as a kind of republic because we take seriously the priesthood of all believers. And to us, it makes the most sense of the relevant passages in the New Testament. Now, I know down here in the machinery, <laughs> when we look at the structure of the church, people are big in that picture, and the glory of the church uh, seems to dim. And when that happens, we, we need to remind ourselves that Almighty God is working in us and through us to accomplish his purposes. Is that bigger picture, the one that puts God back in the frame, that allows the light to shine again? That's how we do it here. I think it's biblical. Others may disagree. But at least now, you know and understand why. The next thing we're going to look at, again, seems mundane, and yet there may be more wonder in it than you would have thought. We are, as I highlighted earlier, we're going to talk now about church membership, and, and here we're going to be even deeper down in the machinery of the church when we talk about when we were talking about its structure. The topic's going to require kind of a more sequential approach if we're to understand what we at Why Bible Church believe about church membership. And what we're going to try to do first is to demonstrate that the New Testament assumes a kind of formal membership in the local church. But if I have to go any further, I have to disarm what could become a kind of hostile, hope not, but could become a kind of a hostile situation. And what I mean by that is I am not trying to force anyone to join this church or to do anything that they don't feel led by God to do. You are welcome to attend this church. We're genuinely glad you're here, even if you're not a member and even if you never join. And, and you are welcome to participate here in almost every realm of service or activity you can find. There are some things which are restricted to just members, but there are many other things open to anyone who attends here regularly, who thinks of this as uh, his or her own home church even if you're not members. We want you to have the freedom to do that very thing. So that if you ever decide to join to make it official, the decision will be yours and it will be freely made. Do I think membership is important? 
I, I do, and I, and I hope I can show you why. But I think there are other things in our culture and in our day because of those things that take precedent. Being with Christians in a church where you are comfortable, where you feel welcome, where you hear the Word of God preached. Being in a place where your children are shepherded by loving Christians where you have a sense that you meet with God on Sunday, all of that kind of trumps the membership thing. I still think it's important, but only at the right time in your life and you and you really understand it. But we want you to know how we think about membership and why we think it's important. Now, like I said, it, to get where we're going... We're going to assume that membership is a normal part of church life. And to demonstrate that, we're going to look at first what might be referred to as the subtraction side of the equation where people are put out of the church. So a, a couple of examples are going to suffice. In Third John, the apostle is writing to his friend Gaius. And he's writing about a man named Diotrephes, who was likely the pastor of that church. And John writes these words. So when I come, I will call attention to what he, that's Diotrephes, is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. And not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who do, and he puts them out of the church. Paul takes the same approach with someone in the Corinthian church. It's actually reported among you that sexual immorality of a kind that um, the pagans don't even tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and then put out of your fellowship? Greek word there translated more accurately, you'd be put out of your midst, the man who's been doing this. We can turn to Romans, I mean, in Matthew 18, where Jesus tells the church to take action against unrepentant persons. Now, you're afraid to argue that that doesn't mean they were members of these churches, but how do you put something out unless they were first in? If they're not members of the church, just what are they? How can a particular church have authority over them unless they're somehow part of that church? If they're not members of some kind, if they're just hangers on, just, how does the church have any responsibility to them at all? You see, in days gone by, you were either a member of a church or you weren't. Now, and we've allotted a third category where we treat you like a member, restricting you only in certain areas because you think of this as your church home. And we think of you that way, too. So, somehow, you, you think of yourself as a part of us, and, and that's the way we think of you. It's just not an official thing. But it's not just why Bible Church that's done this. Many churches have, because of the, the culture we live in. People are so slow to commit to even good things. That's the subtraction side that we see people being put out of the church. Uh, we, we're going to turn to the addition side again. A couple of examples, both in Acts 2. Peter just finished preaching, and in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And in verses 46 and 47, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
it wasn't just that people were getting saved. They were being added to something. And in that verse, second verse, doesn't that sound an awful like, like church? <laughs> people were being baptized. They met together. They had the Lord's Supper. They fellowshiped. They praised God. They even had life groups going, Jim. People are added to the church, and, and they can be put out of it. We're going to look at other things that indicate some sort of membership or membership-like structure, such as the relationship between leaders and the people. Peter says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. There's a flock, and that flock, that group of people, the elders are to shepherd them. The church took responsibility for the welfare of widows within the church. And that's why the office of deacon was created in Acts 6. And, and, and Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, refers to the widows list, maintained by the church, a list not of, of widows in general, but widows within the congregation. And even the word member is used when Paul talks about being a part of the body of Christ. Now, that Greek word it means something like a limb, like your arm or your leg. That is what it means. But it belongs to a body. The New Testament assumes some kind of formal relationship. Now, now let, me, let me tell you on, on one level why this is important to a church that's structured like ours. See, if you're a member of this church, you can vote. You can influence the direction of, uh, and policies of this church. You have a say in who the pastors are. You have input into purchasing and selling property. And if we didn't restrict uh, the privilege and responsibility to just members, people off the street who know nothing of God could come in here and vote... <laughs> Our business meetings are small. Not all of you stay, 30, 40 people at the most. And it wouldn't take a larger group, uh, a group of people to take over. They could shut the church down and vote to sell the property and divide the proceeds only among those who are at the meeting. If membership wasn't a requirement. And that might seem outlandish to you, but I'm aware of another organization in this area that almost had that very thing happen to them. We just changed our constitution because the way it was written, people who haven't been a part of this church in ages could have shown up at one of our business meetings and caused all sorts of problems. And that kind of thing does happen too often in churches. A small group of disgruntled people in the church, maybe they don't like the pastor or so program. They go talk to those old people that used to be in the church that are still on the rolls. They get them on their side and they come back into a business meeting in order to make policy. And that's with membership. Can you imagine what it would be like if we didn't have such requirements? Now, and I said, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I know such and such a church. They don't have membership and they seem to get along fine. Oh, really? <laughs> then it's not structured like ours. Either that church is under a hierarchy uh, where all the decisions are made by the clergy up in this level and not, you have slave people, no input in it, or that church is a local church, but it's operating on what's usually referred to as elder rule. Technically, that's an oligarchy, a self-perpetuating oligarchy, mean, uh, meaning a small group of men make all the decisions for everybody else 
And that same small group of men decides who's going to join their group. Either way, if you're a part of a church like those, you don't have to be a member because you have no say in how things are run other than expressing your opinion. We happen to believe in the priesthood of all believers. And that is a very important doctrine. And this is one very practical way that we put it into practice. On a different level. Membership is important for a different reason. And, and this reason makes it a big decision, which you don't want to enter into lightly. Have you ever talked to someone who is living with uh, another person in what we can politely call a marital way? And he or she says to you they don't need a piece of paper to love that partner, and that is the reason they're not getting married? So let me ask you, uh, do you need a piece of paper to love someone? No, of course not. So why do people get married? Why do they bother with it at all? Because it, it, it's the most powerful way you can say, I am committed to you. I am committed to you and no one else. I am committed to you because I love you and I want you to know it. I want you to know I am holding nothing back. I am entering into a binding legal recorded and recognized relationship with you because I'm committed to you. For, for the Christian, we've added an added reason, a more important reason. We want to obey and honor God, but even the unbeliever ought to see that a marriage contract is more than just a piece of paper. When a person takes that step, makes that commitment, everything changes even on the spiritual level. There's a better awareness, a greater sense of responsibility, a grander view of relationship between a man and a woman, calling them to a higher plane. They might fail, but at least they tried. Membership's kind of like that. That's why you don't make the decision lightly. It seals your commitment to a particular local expression of the body of Christ. It puts your relationship to the church on a different, more serious footing. It is in reality a recognition and an acknowledgement on your part that God wants you here. And we saw this earlier in Acts. It's God who adds people to the church. On our part, we recognize the same truth, that God wants you here, and we have a responsibility to you. Now, you need to understand something. Membership's not identical to the marriage relationship. You can move to another area and go to another church. Uh, God may move you to another church around the corner from here because he has more need of you there than here, and that's okay. We want what God wants. Sometimes a church loses its way and has lost its lampstand and you have no choice but to leave. All of that is legitimate. All of that is possible. But none of that should keep you from making a commitment to join a church if it's a church where God has brought you. God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. 
His thoughts are higher than our ways, and his ways higher than ours. It's Jesus Christ who is building this church. It's not me. It's not the elders or the deacons. It's not you. God uses all of us, but he's the builder. Do you really think he's left you out of his reckoning? Do you not realize he has plans for you, plans for good and not for evil? And that church is part of his plan for all of his people, including you. Do you really think it's not important? I mean, you have the freedom here. We want you to have the freedom here to take a good long time to consider whether or not this is where God wants you. Or not. (laughs) But you ought to be considering it. If you're feeling any pressure right now, then you should at least consider the possibility that I'm not the one who's exerting it. I've simply told you what we believe as a church, and I will not hound you about it. I really won't give it another thought. (laughs) You see, I believe all my heart in the priesthood of all believers, and that if you belong to God, that he is at work in your life, that's not my responsibility. All my heart, I believe this is between you and him. And that's where I'll leave it. Jesus Christ said, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell don't stand a chance. Be a part of us. Join us if you can. But let's advance the kingdom of God together. The world still lies in darkness, and our task is not done. Be the salt. Be the light. Go with God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we want to hear from you always. We want to hear and know what you say and know what it means. And we ask for your grace to help us to put it into practice in our lives. I pray for every single person that's here today, Lord. It's not by accident that they're here. You had something to say to them today. I pray that they would hear and embrace. And thank you so much, Lord, for all that you have done in this church and all that you continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.